Magician's Niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Chapter 30 The Dodo. Dawn didn't recognize the handwriting on the parcel, but she did recognize the postmark that she saw. It said, Hollywood, Northern Ireland. Unless this parcel was from some distant relative, it was definitely sent by her mother. The parcel was heavy, about the weight of two old books from the science section of the dusty library. The package was in the shape of a square. It had sharp and spiky edges. The brown paper had been folded neatly and stuck down with sellotape underneath. Aren't you going to open it? asked Mrs. Wade at Eleven's that morning. Dawn didn't dare to. Her mother had been very angry on the telephone and she didn't doubt that this was something nasty, some kind of horrid revenge. Don't you want to know what it is? It could be a present. Mrs. Wade picked up the parcel. She bounced it up and down between her fingertips. I think it could be fudge or flapjacks or a cake. Got any bakers in the family? Dawn was definitely not going to open it now. Not only was her mother a terrible cook, but she was also a cook who couldn't be trusted. I don't like my mummy's cooking, said Dawn. Well, it could be shop-bought. Aren't you going to give us a sample? We could all be your guinea pigs. That's a nasty thing to say, said Dawn, under her breath, morosely. I like guinea pigs, and I like Mrs Tiggywinkle, and I'm not going to force her or anyone else to eat any of this. Mrs Wade shook her head at Dawn. Dawn found herself shaking her head back at Mrs Wade. She took hold of the parcel and she scarpered from the kitchen. She most certainly didn't want anyone else to fall ill just because of her own mother's pretend generosity. Dawn went to Etta's bedroom. She knocked tentatively on the door. Inside, the floor was spread with newspaper clippings. There were puddles of paper everywhere. All the strange stories Etta had found of her own family over the years. The one, for example, about her uncle, who was shot by the baddies and had to be looked after at home for a very long while. And then his mother, Etta's grandmother, who was a bit unusual and who bought him zebras, a giraffe and an elephant and kept them all in the garden under the Irish rain. Dawn sat down on Etta's bed. She asked what she should do about this parcel. Would Etta open it if it had arrived for her? Would she throw it straight away? Etta asked Dawn if she was absolutely sure that the parcel was sent by her mother. Unless it's a friendly present from your granny, I don't know anyone else who would be sending me things. Auntie Kira's gone away. Daddy can't write. Uncle Nigel lives just around the corner. But then an idea struck her. Just for a moment. It was a lovely thought. Dawn considered the parcel between her fingers and then she looked up at Etta once again. Maybe, Etta. I'm not saying that it is, but maybe it's a present from Auntie Kira. She used to go to Hollywood a lot. That's where her favourite shop is. Well, opening the parcel isn't going to kill you. And then you'll have your answer. Dawn turned the parcel over. She began peeling away the sticky tape. 
She unfolded the paper and saw underneath that Mrs. Wade was right. It was a cake of some kind. There was a silver tin with robins on it. Dawn lifted the lid. Inside, she found a big piece of homemade tray bake. She showed the contents to Etta. Looks delicious, Etta said. Can I have a piece? Dawn tore away the box from Etta and told her, Not until we've read the note. But there wasn't a note. Dawn decided to compare the handwriting on the parcel with the handwriting on Auntie Kira's letters that she kept in her top desk drawer. Etta agreed it wasn't the same handwriting. It simply didn't match. But Etta wasn't put off from sampling the tray bake. Please, Dawn, just a taste. But Dawn outright refused. Do you know what I learnt in the library? My mum grows deadly plants in the garden. Don't be silly. It's called nightshade, and it's purple, and it's enough to kill a dodo. What colour is the cake? It's brown, it's not purple. If she's cooking with nightshade, Etta, she's also cooking with something else. Etta was beginning to get angry. Wouldn't Dawn just drop all these sinister suggestions? She knew all about weird families, she said, but this was really weird and she really didn't like it. I'll prove to you your mother hasn't poisoned it, Dawn, said Etta, taking a bite of the cake. Dawn began to cry. She ripped the tin from between Etta's fingers. You idiot, she said. That's how Daddy fell down and he ended up in a home. You don't know that, Dawn. There isn't any proof. He had too much salt and he had his purple gins and that was enough to make him ill. That night, Dawn refused to leave Etta. She was so afraid that her friend would choke that she wouldn't wake up in the morning. Dawn slept on the sofa in Etta's bedroom. Every hour or so she got up just to check that Etta was still alive. Dawn couldn't bear the idea of her nasty mother getting to every single person that she loved so dearly in her life. It had been three weeks now and there had still not been a single word about the will. Victoria had been waiting with great anticipation for the handing over of the keys. She had even got an estimation from one of her contacts at the luxury estate agents in Hollywood, a cool half million they said, and that at the very least. Victoria had plans to sell off the large garden. She had it from another contact in the know that there was at least half an acre's worth of land at that address. Victoria had already whiled away many an afternoon, reviewing the whole gamut of options. Luxury apartments, let's say, another detached home with a separate drive, a swimming pool, a granny flat. The possibilities were infinite. Victoria could easily flit between Belfast and London to supervise any building or sale. She was to become a veritable jet-setter. She'd make friends with all the British Airways cabin crew. And the thought of bossing around a bunch of builders was quite a thrill. 
The only downside, of course, was that she might have to pop in on occasion to see her burden of a child, now that she had become the doting mother. Still, she could just work a little more on Dr. Jones. In any case, Victoria was beginning to feel the tick of the clock. Tempus fugit, she was beginning to think, as she thumbed through the August pages of her moleskin diary. Time most certainly did not wait for any woman, and she determined, therefore, to find out just what was going on with the will. That morning, Victoria phoned Kira's next of kin, the one at least that she detailed on her sister's cruise pass. That ghastly excuse for a man, her ex-brother-in-law, Nigel Dunleavy. The Peacock Nigel hadn't heard Victoria's voice for many years. He'd forgotten how superficially sweet and how cloyingly lovely she could pretend to be when it suited her. As a professional actor, he could spot talent at a thousand paces. It was a shame, he thought, that she'd missed her calling. All that devious pretense and conniving might have instead been put to good use. Kira and Victoria were such different people, Nigel always thought. His own ex-wife so shy and sweet, Victoria an explosive mountain of self-indulgence and attention-seeking. He had to admit that he'd found it saddening to see his once beautiful wife begin to resemble this mound of a woman, one of life's many tragedies. Not quite as tragic, of course, as a woman with many good years ahead of her, deciding to take her own life. Victoria had phoned up Nigel that morning about the will. He'd had to confess to the woman that it hadn't even crossed his mind. He was too busy grieving for the loss of such a beautiful human being. Victoria had protested that it wasn't on her own behalf that she was making the inquiry. It was, rather, for the sake of her daughter, Dawn. Nigel didn't believe this excuse for a second. She was far too wily and greedy for that. For his part, Nigel had no idea what he was to receive, if anything, from Kira's estate. The conversation, however, set him to thinking that if anything was to come his way, he'd put it in a trust fund for Dawn. That's what Kira would have wanted. Nigel told Victoria that if she was so desperately interested as to the contents of Kira's estate, she should simply phone up the solicitor. Before curtly hanging up, he told his ex-sister-in-law, I'm organising a memorial service for Kira next Thursday. You are, naturally, invited. It was, of course, an unnecessary invitation, but deep down Nigel hoped that Victoria wouldn't accept it. 
He knew well that the woman would transform the service from a celebration of Kira's past life to a stage show about all the dramas of Victoria's present one. She made it through the night. She even seemed quite healthy. See, you're exaggerating. You've got that vivid imagination, just like Dr. Jones always says. I know people can be nasty to members of their own family, but all this murder stuff is simply too much. Dawn was beginning to think that Etta might have been right all along. She was right about most things. She'd experienced much more life than Dawn had, and she'd read a lot more books. Have a peace, Dawn. It'll make you less suspicious. And so, at Elevens's that morning, Dawn had a slice of tray bake. It was fifteens, and you could only get them in Northern Ireland. Dawn had to admit that it was the nicest thing her mother had ever made. It was crumbly and sticky and full of marshmallows and cherries and raisins and coconut. Dawn apologised to Mrs Wade for yesterday, and said how rude she'd been when she ran away with her parcel. She let everybody in her house have a great big slice. As Dawn sat there, eating her tray bake and sipping on a cup of tea, she thought about why her mother would send her a plain old cake without any poison. Did her mummy want something out of Dawn, or was Dawn just getting herself all wound up? Derek a number of times before. It was he, in fact, who told Kira to make sure that the man didn't get a penny of the rest of the estate. He had also suggested that Kira's niece be the sole benefactor should anything happen to the woman. He couldn't believe how grasping that man was after all that he'd already squeezed out of his poor ex-wife. Gerald supposed that it was fair that the male of the species also receive large payouts at the dissolution of a marriage, especially since, these days, women could also be the main breadwinner in the home. Legally, of course, there was nothing to be done. But during the proceedings leading up to the couple's divorce, Gerald had found it supremely distasteful that the man's lawyers had claimed that the lovely Miss Dunleavy had punched him in the shoulder and that he was traumatised with being called a monster with such frequency and vitriol. But he was exactly that. Gerald felt ashamed of his own manhood when a member of his kind could act so despicably. He had tried ever so gently to warn Kira, after her first divorce, of the dangers of predatory men seeking single wealthy women off which to feed for the rest of their leisure-filled days. She hadn't listened to him, of course but he couldn't blame her. Unfortunately, as Gerald had come to learn, pain was the only true teacher in matters of the heart. Gerald always thought of himself as a very good judge of character, 
But when he received that bright and breezy message on the answering machine that morning from Mrs. Burton Swift, he found he couldn't make out if her intentions in inquiring after her sister's estate were good or utterly bad. The lady sounded nice enough, but though Miss Dunleavy had never said it in so many words, she had intimated that her sister was not at all to be trusted. In any case, he thought, why would a well-heeled woman be so concerned with inheriting more money at the expense of someone who was clearly so desperately in need? Her own daughter. Of course, there was the possibility that she didn't know that Dawn was to be the sole benefactor of the estate. It was clear that Kira and her sister rarely saw each other or even spoke. Perhaps she was acting on her daughter's best behalf. Perhaps, knowing that little Dawn had barely a concept of the value of money, she was ensuring that the girl was not cheated out of anything that was rightfully hers. So, Gerald resolved to give Mrs Burton Swift the benefit of the doubt. He would phone the woman the following day after visiting Dawn in person and after giving the young lady a tour of her new house. She'd never got the chance at Lowton's. Everything was always done by Mrs. Wade, which was nice. But it was also nice to try these things out for yourself. Etta was going to have the green bedroom. The walls in Dawn's bedroom were pink. They each had their own bathroom. Etta's had a shower, and Dawn's had a bath with feet that looked like eagle's claws. The garden was a magical green and grassy place. There was a bird table, and Dawn couldn't wait to spend all her afternoons watching the robins and the blue tits and the jays swoop in and eat all the seeds and sip up all the water. In the summer, they could have picnics and invite all of their friends from Lotons to come. Etta and Dawn and Kira would have a dog, and they would take it to the common for walks. Dawn liked black Labradors because they were always so loyal, and she liked the golden ones too because they seemed to have a big smile on their faces all the time. This place must cost a lot of money, said Etta. I bet it's at least a thousand pounds, replied Dawn. Dawn saw the grey-haired solicitor give a big grin. His bristly eyebrows twitched with the rhythm of his laughter. Yes, it is worth a lot of money. It's very rare to have such a big house with a garden this size so close to central London. 
We'll go on trips into town, beamed Dawn, with such excitement that she found she could muster barely a whisper. I love going on trips with Auntie Kira. We go to the nice shops for afternoon tea. It's lovely, one of my most favourite things. Dawn smiled up at Mrs Wade because she didn't seem to be smiling. Don't worry, she said. You can come too. Mrs Wade didn't say anything. She just chewed on her lips, which Dawn thought was very strange behaviour. Etta asked the old man when they were allowed to move in. Well, said the old man, the house is Dawn's, but I think you'll have to get permission from the school first of all. Oh, I don't know whether we could spare them, said Mrs Wade. Dawn noticed that Mrs Wade couldn't seem to look her in the eye. It was just like Derek used to do. When Auntie Kira comes back, we'll be allowed, said Dawn. All of this was really quite obvious, she thought. Mrs Wade said she was going to take the old man into the kitchen for a special talk. You girls go and explore the house, she said. And so Dawn and Etta ran up the staircase and they chatted about all of their plans for the place. for children with learning difficulties. Wimbledon, SW19. Friday the 2nd of August, 1985. Dear Victoria, I'm afraid that I write to you with some growing concern. As you may be aware, Mr. Gerald Crowther came to visit Dawn this week and announced to her that she is to inherit Miss Dunleavy's Wimbledon house. Whilst this is a lovely notion, of course, for Dawn, it has caused some unnecessary overexcitement amongst the girls. Dawn has been talking to me about her plans to move into the house with Etta Deauville. I have tried to explain to Dawn that this is, unfortunately, impossible, but she does not seem to comprehend that, despite soon being an adult and Etta being 35, I simply cannot allow for this to happen. Do not be surprised, therefore, if Dawn asks you for written permission, as her new guardian, to allow her to leave the Lotons' house and to move into the new house in Wimbledon. I'm also sad to announce that Mrs Wade has been informing me that Dawn still does not seem to believe that her aunt is truly gone. This is, again, a natural occurrence in a child of Dawn's age and with her limitations. Perhaps this is something you can talk to her about in person when you next visit. In any case, I understand that you are flying over this coming week for Ms Dunleavy's memorial service. I look forward to finally meeting you face to face. With all best wishes, Dr Sophia Jones, MD, MA, FRC Psych. Chapter 37 
Rachel received the tearful phone call at 11 o'clock that Saturday morning, just after the post had been delivered. Victoria's breath was heavy down the line. Tears of rage were those that she was crying. Rachel couldn't believe the injustice of it all. She reassured Victoria, told her chum that she'd be there in merely a dash. And then she threw herself into her new soft-top golf and sped over the country lanes of Crigantlet to meet her furious friend. Rain was beginning to tear through the skies. Rachel, though, an obedient and loyal lieutenant, was unperturbed. She began to speed indiscriminately through the pools that were beginning to gather on the pothole road, splashing a fair few hikers as she went. She whacked up her windscreen wipers to beat at top speed, thrashing through the torrents now, just as she was angrily muttering through all of the terrible unfairnesses that had befallen her best of friends. This one, though, was one too many. And it affected her, Rachel, too, because anything that was in Victoria's pocket might indirectly end up in hers. Indeed, she'd enjoyed many holidays over the years at Victoria's expense. Unlike Victoria, though, Rachel had had to work all her sorry life as a secretary in a bank. Yes, her husband was an architect, quite accomplished in fact, but he wasn't well enough known and well enough off to be able to send their boys to Campbell College without all the extra money she brought in as well. Rachel felt herself grinding her teeth. She felt the anger at this Kira girl bubble up from the depths of her gut to the well of her throat. She'd been so incredibly reckless, thought Rachel, in awarding all that money to a girl who was incapable of either appreciating it or indeed putting it to any good use. Dawn would most probably spend it all on items of tat and endless ice creams. It was all very well for a posh London bird, rolling in endless cash, someone who'd never had to think twice about any of her expenses, to thoughtlessly dump money on someone who nearly cost her best friend her life and her sanity, as well as a small fortune on fees. Rachel thundered under the railway bridge into Helen's Bay village. She veered the corner with a supplementary rev and pulled up at Victoria's house with a yank on the handbrake and a screech of the wheels. Rachel dashed through the rain and banged her fist on Victoria's red front door. Breathless, she could hear the patter of Victoria's feet and drew the bottle of white wine she'd brought with her from her handbag with the speed of a gunslinger at the first sight of her best friend. What terrible news for you, my dear, she said. Victoria ushered her in. Rachel waved the bottle of Chardonnay victoriously to ensure her best friend had seen it. I know it's only 11.30, but it is a Sunday, so two fingers up to propriety, I say. Two fingers up to the man. Victoria took out her newest and largest Waterford Crystal wine glasses. Together they shuffled into the snug, downed the first few gulps of the Moorish liquid and flopped languidly onto the huge leather sofa. Victoria's temples were still red with rage. She was breathing through her nose in rhythmic inhalations. Rachel felt it was as good a moment as any to begin prying into what had really occurred. Poor lamb, she fawned. Tell me from the beginning, because I just don't understand how that child has managed to get her sticky mitts on all that money. From where I'm standing, it's so obviously a mistake. She took hold of Victoria's thick fingers. I'm sure they've just made a terrible mistake. Victoria shook her head. She straightened her back and told Rachel that it wasn't possible, 
It wasn't a mistake. It was all thought thoroughly through because she knew that type of solicitor and she knew their duplicitous ways. I left several messages on his phone, she said. Not pushy messages, just inquiries, just to make sure I knew where I stood. What did he say? He said nothing, nothing. He didn't pick up, not even once. How rude. Must have seen the Belfast number and decided to ignore it. And he's not rude, Rachel, he's a coward. He just didn't have the guts to tell me the bad news directly. Like you say, anyone can see that this situation is entirely unjust. He couldn't pluck up the courage to tell me to my face. If he's just a coward, Vic, then that doesn't make him duplicitous. Maybe you could bring him round, get him back on side. You're so very good at that. Victoria shook her head with solemnity. You know what Kira was like as a child? Rachel did. Well, she didn't change a jot as a grown-up, and she employed that man, for heaven's sake, paid him pounds to believe her tales. She would have twisted every story about me to fit that Virgin Mary narrative she always had about herself. Gerald Crowther is his name, and I'm sure he was a prime worshipper. Kira would have had him licking at her feet. And he went behind your back like that, straight to dawn in the school. It seems quite obvious he wants me out of the picture entirely. Rachel took a long swig of the syrupy liquid. She smacked her lips and then she went on. It might not necessarily have anything to do with you at all, Vic. The sagging skin on Victoria's jowls shook with all the shock of this impertinent interjection. It has everything to do with me. I pay the school fees. I mean to say that Kira's greedy ex-husband, what was his name? Dennis? Derek. Maybe this Crowther fellow simply persuaded Kira to put everything in Dawn's name so that that avaricious git didn't get his sticky fingers on any more than your silly sister had let him take in the first place. Do you know how much he got in that payoff? Did you ever hear of such a ridiculous thing? My sister, a woman, had to pay him to piss off. A man. And he took it. For shame. Times have changed, Vic, and not at all for the better. You don't know my sister, my lovely. I don't doubt that the bitch put it all in Dawn's name just to spite me. But I ask you again, who is paying the school fees? And as the psychiatrist had said a number of times, I bravely gave her the privilege of being a mother to my own child. Rachel gave a weary and conciliatory exhale. She took the glasses to the sideboard to top them up again. You paid the money, she said. She got all the praise. You are far too generous. We all know it. And anyone who really knows you, anyone who's been on holiday with you, knows just how kind and generous you truly are. Anyone who says otherwise is just jealous of you. It's high time, Victoria, you stood up for yourself. It's time you put yourself first. Victoria snatched the glass from Rachel. She threw a good measure of alcohol down her throat all at once. I bet that Derek twit has been making all kinds of aggressive phone calls. The thought just makes me sick. What if this Crowther fellow is a weakling? What if he gets persuaded to siphon off a few thou? Rachel shook her head with despair. You always knew that Derek was a rotter. But would your sister listen to you? No, of course not. Of course, poor woman, I'm sad that she died. But Kira was so very inconsiderate sometimes. 
She had absolutely no appreciation of what you'd done for her, guiding her through that awful time with that pufter. What was his name? Nigel. She really did have a knack of picking total tossers. No self-confidence, said Victoria. That was her problem. And did she think of how Dawn would feel when she decided to jump off that boat? What a waste of a holiday. My holiday. My money. If I'd known she was going to waste it, I'd have taken her place on the cruise. That house is rightfully yours. You'll have to fight for it. I don't like to speak ill of the weak and the needy. But how a child like Dawn is supposed to manage a house like that, I have no idea. It's of no good to her. It's a waste. I bet she doesn't even understand the concept of money. That girl doesn't know what side her bread's been buttered. Victoria poured herself a fresh glass. Rachel knotted her fingers. She began to wonder what advice she could possibly come up with next. But surely, Vic, surely they'll come to see sense. Common sense will surely prevail. Victoria gave a long and simpering sigh. Oh, Rachel, I do love my daughter, but a blind man can see that it would be totally wrong for a girl like that to live in that house on her own. She finished the last of the wine and cleared her throat with a quiet belch. You know the way these private schools work. Any way to turn the screw. I've got to be careful they don't take this opportunity to cane me for any more fees. At the mention of the word fees, Rachel could see the blood drain from her friend's strained face. Victoria began quietly sobbing into her Liberty's handkerchief. Oh, I do hope they don't send that fat lady that lives with the girls to go and live with Dawn instead. Mrs. Walters, or whatever she's called. I bet they'll demand I employ her on a one-on-one basis. That'll be a cool eight grand a year. Easily. Honestly, they must think I'm made of money. Victoria, you're jumping to conclusions. You've got no evidence for this at all. What have I done to deserve my life? Victoria moaned in reply. I've put up with such hideous things, such mean people. It's just not fair. I'm all alone now, and Geoffrey's home costs a bomb. That sister of mine was always so tricky and mean, you know. She looked up at Rachel, into her eyes. Please don't let me let her have the last laugh. And then, a thought struck Rachel. She had, after all, picked up a degree of expertise in finance in her role as a secretary at the local bank. There could be one other way around it. Hang on, she said. How old is Dawn? Has it been 18 years already? You can't own a house any younger than that, surely. Two months and then she's an adult. Well, sort of. Rachel asked if Victoria couldn't get her to sign the house over to her somehow before then. Aren't you going to the memorial service, she asked. Can't you work on Little Dawn then? Victoria replied that sadly her daughter didn't seem to trust her anymore. She was sure that tricky Kira had somehow poisoned her mind. She doesn't like you. I'm afraid I just can't understand that. After everything you've done for the girl over the years. Remember how my sister was as a little child, Rachel. She was always just the same. A sourpuss. Manipulative. It was she who got mummy and daddy to cast me as the baddie. And she always took the starring princess role. It's obvious that Dawn doesn't like me. She doesn't trust me. And where did that come from? That is unfortunate, said Rachel, chewing her lip. But I assume you're working on her now? 
buying her gifts and teddy bears, etc. She can't be too complicated of a little girl, surely. Give them a lollipop and they'll be a friend for life. Well, I was thinking of buying her a puppy, said Victoria, and keeping it here, because then she'd have no choice but to come home and see it. Oh, you are naughty, was Rachel's airy reply. But needs must, I suppose. It's for her good as well as yours. Of course, you'll have to start paying kennel fees when we go off on holiday at the end of the year. Rachel gave a dry little laugh, but she noticed that Victoria wasn't laughing with her. The woman was, instead, drumming her fuchsia-coloured fingernails ponderously on the stiff arm of the leather sofa. Have you ever heard, my dear, of this thing called power of attorney? I'm sure it was some kind of storyline on Dallas earlier this year. Hmm, thought Rachel. I have actually now you mention it. I'm sure Dickie got it when his mother went gaga. He took control of absolutely everything. Not that there was very much left. Went gaga, parroted Victoria, looking up at her friend. Dawn's already, you know. I wonder if that's enough for a case. scarves and the earrings too. They're both the same so no arguing. I bought them from the boutique in Hollywood, Auntie Kira's favourite. They are very expensive but you're both so very worth it. Lots of love, I hope you'll love me back, mummy, kiss kiss. Dawn read out the note slowly to Etta, stumbling over the long words like boutique and cashmere. She felt the scarves with her fingertips. They were soft, like candy floss, and the earrings were twinkling like stars. Shall we keep them, Hen? Dawn asked. You can't poison clothes. Dawn draped her scarf over her shoulders. It was lavender, and it went very well with her favourite purple coat. I don't know why she's sending me presents. I haven't done anything particularly nice. Etta said that it was probably because she realised how much of a witch she'd been and she wanted to make up for it now that Kira was gone. She probably felt sorry for Dawn, who was very, very sad about her auntie. I don't think my mummy has ever felt sorry for anyone. Maybe they're an early birthday present. Dawn laughed at that idea. It was silly. Her 18th was still not for another month and a half. Maybe you'll have to do something in return, Dawn. Maybe she's paying you in nice things instead of money. I think she's paying you up front. But why on earth is she paying you? I don't think she's ever met you. Dawn didn't think that Etta was being very helpful. Her friends simply shrugged. She said she was keeping the present and that she'd write a letter to Dawn's mummy to say thank you because she was obviously just being very, very kind but Dawn wasn't going to write any letters. That afternoon, Dawn and Etta went to Kira's house. Dawn was beginning to love visiting the Wimbledon house in the afternoons, even though Auntie Kira still hadn't come back. She could smell her perfume in the kitchen, and in the bathroom, and in the bedroom, and under the stairs and behind the curtains too. 
Whilst Mrs. Wade was in the kitchen, having a coffee and a sandwich, Dawn and Etta had begun to find that they liked nothing more than to go up to the attic to try on Kira's old clothes. She had all these very high heels and tops covered in shiny sequins and short skirts with flowers and ruffles all over them. And she had funny hats and leather jackets and fur coats and belts and scarves. Etta and Dawn had such fun. They were having such fun that afternoon until a bird flew into the attic through the open skylight. The poor little thing was terrified and it flapped about and it knocked down an entire bookcase in its trapped frenzy. Dawn and Etta managed to shoo it out of the skylight again and then they had to gather up all the books that had been knocked down onto the floor. Mrs Wade came up into the attic. She was breathless. What's going on? she asked. It sounds like a thunderstorm. Mrs Wade began to help the girls to put the books back onto the bookshelf. But then there was a pink leather book that seemed to catch Dawn's eye. Dawn bent down and picked it up. She tried to open the book, but it was locked. She asked Mrs Wade what it could possibly be. It looks to me like a diary, Dawn. What's a diary? asked Dawn in reply. It's where a person puts all their secret thoughts, thoughts that they don't want anybody to know about. Is it private? asked Dawn. Well, if it's got a lock on it, then I assume it's very private. Dawn looked at Etta. Etta wasn't telling her with her eyes to put it back. Dawn was so interested in what was going on in her auntie's mind that she wanted so desperately to read it. It might answer the question, she thought, about why Auntie Kira decided to go away, about why everybody was saying that she was so unhappy when Dawn knew for sure that she wasn't. Dawn wanted to know what Auntie Kira had been thinking behind her eyes because her eyes always looked so very happy. Everyone was saying that Auntie Kira was sad and that was why she went away. But Dawn didn't think that that was the way of it. Dawn told Mrs Wade to go downstairs and finish her sandwich, that she and Etta would do all the rest of the tidying up themselves. Dawn waited until the thump of Mrs Wade's footsteps had faded down the staircase. Etta didn't shake her head when Dawn put the diary in her purple bag. She decided she would open the book that evening. She'd cut open the lock on the cover with Mrs Wade's sewing scissors.